once the time has been served on the inside, you begin a life sentence on the outside, especially if you've been labeled with a felony. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dahm, and today I'm talking to Pastor Donna Hubbard and Mr. Carl Root, who are both activists in Georgia working on the front lines to help folks return from prison. Pastor Hubbard is the founder of the Women at the Well Transition Center, and Mr. Root is the founder of the National Association of Previous Prisoners. Their stories are incredible, their work is inspiring, and it was such a pleasure to sit down with them. I learned so much and hope you do too. I don't often get to interview two people at a time, and I know you guys have known each other for a while. So I thought maybe you could introduce each other. Okay. All right. Um, my name is Pastor Donna Hubbard. I want to introduce my uh, dear friend and my brother, Carl Root. My name is Carl Root, and I'd like to introduce my sister and friend, Pastor Donna Lynn Hubbard. <laughs> what I love about her is she's relentless, and it takes her kind of relentlessness, her kind of tenacity to get the work done that we're attempting to do because... Uh, many times it's a very thankless work. Mm -hmm. Nobody's really giving you any attaboys or patting you on the back, and especially uh, nobody's throwing any money your way. <laughs> you really have to go out and, and, and do what you have to do to get the money to sustain yourself. And, and she's been able to do it and do it effectively while maintaining transition homes for women coming out of prison and mentoring women who desperately need the help because right now in America, the largest growing, the fastest growing population incarceration are women. And she has been out there doing the work for many years tirelessly, and it's not easy. So I'd like to introduce to some and just let the world know that Sister Donna, Pastor Donna Lynn Hubbard is <laughs> in the house. <laughs> okay. I'll put the check in the mail. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> Mr. Root, you talked a little bit about the life sentence on the outside. Yes. And I wonder if you could just sort of lay the ground for us of what do you mean by that and, and why is reentry work important? Okay, uh, and, and the reason I say it like this, once the time has been served on the inside, you begin a life sentence on the outside, especially if you've been labeled with a felony. Mm -hmm. Because now... We just banned the box as of late. I think it's been maybe five years. If that. Yeah, maybe, maybe not that long. But they banned the box because on many employment applications, it reads, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Mm -hmm. Ever? ever? That's why. That's why I say you begin a life sentence because yeah. when you see that, have you ever, it, you know, yeah. you got to say yes. You almost never get a chance to overcome it. Exactly. So that's why I the phrase that way because that's been my experience most the average citizen who has not experienced that label when they look at an application they can go right past that but a formerly incarcerated person when they see have you ever been convicted of a felony crime <laughs> they have yeah. they have a decision to make yeah and and not telling the truth is automatic grounds for termination that's it so 
that is a cause to stop, a cause to pause and go, wow, how do I answer this? Exactly. Even though it's been 30 years. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? So that's why I say that. And many, many, many people in Georgia alone, we have 190,000 people doing time on paper. That means they're either on parole or probation. And you got people that can have upwards of 20, 30, 40 years on probation or parole. So, you know, that's what I mean when I say that. You know, it's a life sentence. And um, for people that are... So that sort of follows you throughout your life. What about the, the, you know, moment when someone is coming back from prison? Can you describe what Mm -hmm. those, you know... What's, what's going on in those first two weeks, month, or whatever the timeline you think is right? First 72 yeah. hours. 72 hours, yeah. And it's <laughs> talking me about, like, how, what, you walk out the door, and, yes. mm-hmm. and, and what do folks need? Well, <laughs> let me say this before the call starts. It's very different for men than it is for women. Yes. Okay, how so? Very different for men. Yes. I'll let Carl tell you, because men face a whole nother genre, uh, genre of challenges than women do. Even though we both come from, we both are coming from behind the bars. There are stigmas and stereotypes, and yes. uh, that are and obstacles and challenges that are very different. And I must say that a woman has a much harder time, from my perspective. Now, the man, immediately when you come out in the state of Georgia, you get twenty five dollars, mm-hmm. no matter how a, much time you've served. In a suit of clothes, a suit, and a bus ticket. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> to wherever you want. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's it. it. Now, and those first 72 hours are very, very critical because most time men, the, what makes it a little bit easier for the man, the reason I say that it's a little hard on a woman is because most men have their mothers, grandmothers, aunties, sisters who are willing to support them. And even if they have children, it's usually the mother, the woman who has those children anyway. So that man, all he really has to be concerned about is housing and a job. But those are the two hardest things to get. Mm-hmm. So depending on the crime, like I, said, like I said earlier, a sex offender has a much, much harder time than just someone who was convicted of selling drugs or, you know, a white lo- a white a robbery or that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. it is very critical that someone meets them at the gate almost because immediately they're faced with Ray Ray and Pookie's little friends are going to have a party for them and they're usually wanting sex Mm -hmm. and there's usually drugs involved and you know the party is on but after that party after that man comes down off that high that drunk or whatever he's faced with the reality that wow here I am back out here and they usually go back right back to the same spots because you they they usually don't have anywhere else to go you got $25 in your pocket and a bus ticket and, and probably a new pair of, of sneakers but that's about it so those, it's critical that you meet someone of substance who is willing to help you get uh, you know get stable enough to be able to care for yourself. And we found that that works. And and that's not always easy because in order for 
an agency, an organization, or an individual to help someone stabilize, they got to have some kind of resources. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we've learned through the years that we have to collaborate in order to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very, very critical that they meet someone of substance to help them stabilize. And it's critical in the first 72 hours. For women who are coming home from prison, even before she comes out of the doors, her mind, that anxious is overtaking her because you got to get your kids, you got to get a job, you got to get a place to live, you got to, you got to, you got to. And when life becomes overwhelming, people return to what's familiar, even if you've never been to prison. So when a woman is about to be released and your mama has four of your children and your sister has the other two and you got to get a job, but you don't even know where you're going to live. And your mama says, so you, you, you got to come get these kids. And your sister's saying, you got to come get these kids. And the only job you can find is at McDonald's making a minimum wage. You can't support a family of six on what you're making at McDonald's. But you got to get a job because they only give you X amount of time to find a job. They being? The parole and pro probation. Okay. Uh, is only going to give you X amount of time to find a job. Some of the kids got attitudes. So. And, and you got, then you got to deal with children who want to remind you, you wasn't here anyway. Exactly. So now you want to be my mama, but you wasn't here. So now you've got that anxiety. And while you're working, you're getting a phone call every five minutes because this one's acting up in school. This one's acting up at home. This one didn't come home. Um, and you're just trying to figure out how you're going to make the money you need to pay your probation officer next week. Right, because they know? charge sort of exactly. supervision fees. And That's mm -hmm. right. Um, on top of that, you've got your own personal health and well-being to be concerned about as a woman. More often, women have neglected health care issues coming out of prison than men do, which does not minimize the problems that men have. Many men come out of prison at, you know, with uh, health care issues. But women have neglected health care issues that they have put on the back burner even before they went to prison. So now that they're out, um, it may have escalated or her, their health is not as, you know, as good. Can you um, just give me a sense of like what category... Like What's um, an example of a health of a issue neglected health care issue? She may go in. She may have gone into prison not knowing she was HIV positive and okay. come out having been diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, she may come out with uh, uh, hepatitis, um, lupus, um, mental health issues as a result of the stress. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, female issues because you can only get so much health care while you're behind prison bars and some things to them are just not as important and you also don't report some things because you don't want that to tie up if, especially if you're within a year of release you got to be dying to report that you're sick because that means you're going to be held up from being released okay. so now she gets to the she's just a week away men more often than not can shut down women you're a week away from being released and there are other women who may who don't even know when they're going to get out. They're going to pick a fight with you. And why do you think that is? To keep you locked up because misery loves company. It's, okay. it's normal. And so you know to stay out of trouble, stay away from certain people. If you've got to stay in your, your room, you stay in your room. And you get to that day of being released, it could be there's nobody to even pick you up. Uh, your family doesn't want you to come back there. Why yeah. not? Maybe you stole from them before you went to prison. Maybe they already have your kids. Now to take you is an extra burden. 
Um, maybe you are HIV positive and they don't want you to come and live at the house. Um, maybe you have mental health issues and they, you know, would rather see you somewhere else than with them. Um, and so when now, now you get out and hopefully you've made some kind of contact with somebody to come and pick you up from the gate. If not, you're going to walk up the hill, catch the bus to God knows where. You don't even know where. You've called a shelter to see if they have a bed, you know. Again, you've got that suit of clothes on your back and $25. Uh, and you got to pay to get on the bus. Um, so, and you're looking at, in the ideal, in an ideal situation, you could come to Women at the Well Transition Center. We've already made arrangements prior to you being released. We pick you up at the gate. Even then, we have the challenges of women who have left after a week because they just could not handle being free. Freedom and incarceration is a state of mentality is a state of mind, you know. And so I've had women come home uh, two weeks. They take the bus or the train to their drug treatment class. They come back home, back to the house. They get six hours to go look for a job the next day and never come back. Hmm. They just never come back. They meet with Pookie or somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope there isn't someone out know, there named Pookie. Oh, there's, <laughs> plenty of them. Oh, there's, a lot. there's plenty of them. Pookies know who they are. Yeah. You know, um, Pookies or Ra-Ra's and... They meet up with them. Hey, you've been locked up, girl. Come on, let me treat you. Yeah. You know, and the next thing she knows, she's waking up from a stupor or from a high and realizes she didn't come back, so now she can't come back. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. she loses everything. Now she's homeless on the street, going from place to place. And when life gets overwhelming, people resort to what's familiar. And so the recidivism rate is higher among women than it is for men. Interesting. I didn't know that. It is. So you mentioned women at the well. Let's mm-hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about what is women at the well, and how did you found it? Well, Carl and I were both very very blessed to have been associated with A to Imprison Mothers, uh, organization that was founded by Sandra Barnhill, who's uh, an attorney, and. Um, we were both on the board of directors at different times. In fact, I think the seat that I vacated, Carl took. And um, and when I first came home from prison, I was just really, I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to do, but I knew I was supposed to do something. And the only agency that I knew about was that was working with women who had gotten out of prison was Aid to Imprison Mother. So I went there, literally, uh, two days after I got out, and I sat down in a chair and cried for an hour. Mm-hmm. That's all I could do. I could cry. Because I didn't even know where to begin. I had children all over the country. I didn't have a job. I had, um, I didn't, I, thank God I didn't have restitution to pay. But I had no money. I had family, but my family had supported my children. And so, I mean, I was just lost. And I sat there for an hour and cried until, and she just really helped me begin to put my life back together to find a place to live. She found a, um, B- Big Bethel Church had a house called My Sister's Place, and they had a, a duplex. So I could begin to think about bringing my children home because now I had a place to stay, and I had to move in there. And she found some place for me to get dishes and clothes and linen and beds and everything. And so, you know, that one agency helped me to get back on my feet. But what was happening on the inside was that um, what I brought to the table were things that she had not thought about. Not, and, you know, because she was very concerned about the children who were left behind. 
Um, and I looked at it from a different perspective of mothers who were locked, still locked up and getting out like myself with loss, not knowing what to do. And she came to me and said, Donna, I, well, I, I initially started by asking her, can we have some space here to have a support group? Because I needed to talk to other folks like myself, other women like myself, where, to apply for a job, to get clothes, to all of that, to get, you know, uh, how do I get my kids back, all of that. And so we started, you know, little by little, one or two women. We ended up with about 11 women. And um, we were meeting every other week. And Sandra said to me, Donna, I really want to concentrate on working with children whose parents are incarcerated to help them get through this difficult time. She said, but you are supposed to work with the women, so let's do that. I will support you whatever it takes for you to get off your, you know, on your feet. Um, and so what happened was a few of us, a few of the women in the support group started going back to prison. I was devastated. I couldn't figure out what I had done wrong. How did this happen? How did we miss this? And I realized that when women come home from prison, if they don't have a non-judgmental, nurturing environment to return to, their likelihood of success was very limited. Mm -hmm. They needed a non-judgmental, nurturing environment, not, not an institutionalized halfway house, but a place that they could look at as a home because that's what they're gonna be, they're gonna be required to leave and create is a home. But if they're not in a home, how do they do that? You know what I mean? And so I said, so I went to my mother, who herself was a community organizer and a grant writer and a community activist. And I said, I told her all the things and she says, well, what are you, you know, what are you feeling? And I told her, I want to open a place. I want to open a house. I sat down and I wrote this grant and I thought it was just this fantastic grant and I sent it to George Soros. And I, I mean, literally, three weeks later, I get this letter back that says, with, and inside of it was some yellow legal, a yellow legal paper, blank, folded up inside this letter, and says, Donna, all oh, that sounds good, but could you just write and tell us how you ended up, how you got from where you were in prison to where you are today mm -hmm. in doing this work? And I, I mean, my feelings were hurt because I thought I had written a great <laughs> rant. But I literally wrote it on that yellow paper. I mailed it to George Soros, and they sent me a check for $15,000 wow. to start our organization. And I got 2500 and I was mm -hmm. really, I was like, I hand-wrote mine. And, yeah. You know, in pencil, yeah, just on, about. Yeah, I'm and um, the lady said, oh, wow, I love your idea. We're going <laughs> to fund you. <laughs> so it's my understanding that you also recently wrote a book about fatherhood. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Can you tell me a little bit about it? What's it called? It's called, the title is Boy, Man, Father. And a lot of times uh, we get the stages confused. They're, as far as a man is concerned, there are like three stages of development. You're a boy, then you become a man, and eventually a husband and father. But a lot of times we move right from boyhood into man, call ourselves a man because we start doing man things mm -hmm. that we're not ready for, like, having a child that we are not ready to take care of. And that work for me is, uh, is, is very personal because uh, my mom always told me about my own dad. He was not a family man, but yet he had four children. And, and, and my thing was, well, why you get with a man like this? But it had nothing to do with her. It had everything to do with him and his development. As the book entails, the first line is, 
most men in the United States were not taught how to be men. <laughs> we have a lot of babies having babies in America. The statistics are startling. As you can see in Georgia, which is where I'm from, more than 339,000 children live in mother-only households. Mm -hmm. Okay? And those are just startling statistics because responsible fatherhood is the answer to many of society's ills. Yes. I know for me, if I would have had my dad in my life, there was a lot of things that I might have avoided. And there are a lot of statistics associated with father absence, negative statistics, like children going to jail or prison. About 80% of the young men in penal systems uh, were from fatherless homes. Mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming it's the same for females. Mm -hmm. And it's, the, the, the negative statistics associated with father absence is it, it's just so profound that I said, you know what, instead of complaining about it, I'm going to do something about it. In the African-American community alone, 73% of our households are single mother head. Mm -hmm. And a mother cannot teach a man how to be a man. She can't. She does the best that she can, and a lot of women are doing a great job. But she needs help from a coach, a mentor, or some male mm -hmm. figure to help them, especially with the male child. So that's how I got involved in the work. I wrote the book to inspire and to let men know that, hey, enjoy being a boy. Don't go and do something that you know you're not ready for. So this book is about prevention. And that, those are that. me. Those yeah. are, those that's are you in three phases. Love boy, that. man, father. Yes. Wow. That's me actually walking out of the courthouse after getting married back in 1983. That's my wedding picture. Oh. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Kathy married you looking like that. She sure did. And guess what? I asked her to marry you again. And you know what she said? I wouldn't marry you again. I said, you want to do Let's redo our vows. She said, no. I love his wife. She's a good friend of mine. Oh, I have a great deal of respect and admiration for her. Really. She's been the supportive wife that she needed to be in yeah. order to raise a healthy family. Because like I tell her, you married a disabled man. Mm -hmm. How, and what do you mean by disabled? having that label is a disability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There were jobs, like I said, I've been eking out in existence. I haven't made the, been the kind of provider that I could be had I not had that label. I'm articulate enough and presentable enough to be able and to educated. make some money. And I've never been able to make money. Let me give you an example. 1996, the Olympics, the world came to Atlanta, Atlanta and they had part-time jobs. The staffing agency that was hiring, they had a line over here for people who had felony records and a line over here for people who did. And were they like both really long lines? I'm, I'm they had, were both yeah. really long lines, but the line over here with, with criminal backgrounds, $6 an hour. The line over here, $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. And I had, it had been since 1983 that I had been involved with crime. And how did the experiences of women compare? It was really evident to me that there was a stigma on women that did not exist on men from the very beginning. Right. Because uh, men go out of prison, go, come out of prison, and even in some uh, neighborhoods, he becomes a martyr. He's a macho man, you know, he did time. Everybody's afraid of him, even though he's dealing with his own inner struggles. 
And he may be a father. You know what I mean? Um, as Carl said. But what I did find out was that women come home with a different stigma because now she's a bad person right. and a bad citizen and a bad mother. And it's almost like the little girl syndrome where you've got on your little uh, your tutu and your little patent leather shoes and they smack you on the hand and say, you're supposed to know better. You're a girl, right. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so the disparity in sentencing often causes women to, often causes us to shirk from some of our responsibilities, but we don't always have that option. Whereas, um, as Carl stated, the, the number of men who actually are fathers, when you look at the statistics on the other side, um, only 21% of them were, uh, were active in their children's lives right. prior to incarceration. So that means the other 80 or 79% are women who are the primary caregivers for their children. So, um, so our work with women who are incarcerated uh, started with a parenting program. And it was, a, it was a combination of everything I learned about being an absent mother. I learned, and, and we created FOCUS, which is our parenting program, and that was our very first program. Um, we created uh, FOCUS based on the premise that parenting is not presence, it's participation. Um, because so many women were present in their children's lives and didn't participate. So we had to le learn how to participate in our children's lives in spite of the fact that we weren't present. So even in our absence, I tell them, even now, 11 years teaching this same project, um, you don't get the choice of being, of not participating in your child's life just because you're not there. Because you could very well be away at college, you could be serving in the military in Afghanistan, and you are still that child's parent. Mm -hmm. So just because you're behind bars does not excuse you from being that child's parent. So we have to find creative ways to participate. And so that's what FOCUS um, was birthed out of, is that premise that parenting is not just um, pay, uh, presence but participation. And so I had to look at what it took for me to get out of prison and get my life back together again, not just as a woman but as a mother. And there were three principles that we build. Every program that we have at Women at the Well Transition, Transition Center is built on these three programs, I mean principles, and that is accountability, commitment, and consistency. And we did it because accountability means no more excuses, no more lies. No more excuses, no more lies. We have to be accountable for ourselves, our decisions, our actions. Because I truly believe that accountability is directly related to self-esteem and how you feel about yourself. And, and accountability means you don't make excuses for not doing what we know we're supposed to do. But if we can regain our self, if we can re become accountable, we can regain our, our self-esteem. And then the second thing is uh, commitment. And if you don't make a commitment to the woman you look at in the mirror every day, you don't make a commitment to a God you can't see or a family you don't have access to. So the first thing we have to do is make a commitment to ourselves. When we look at ourselves in the mirror every day, we make a commitment to ourselves to be a better person. Because the day that you break that commitment, the day you violate that commitment to that person, then you have lost it all, basically. And I tell them, look in the mirror. That's your best friend right there. you got to take care of her. And you can start by doing small things. Make yourself committed to writing uh, in your journal every day eating a meal every day. For those of us with a history of substance abuse, like myself, we didn't eat every day. We would avoid, you know, we missed meals because we were running behind drugs. And so I said, make your commitments small, things that are achievable, 
But once you can live up to a commitment, then you can re you can uh, regain your self uh, respect, and that's how you treat yourself, you know. So then, and and finally, consistency, because it's not what we did one time that changed the quality of our life, but it's what you do consistently that changes the quality of your life. If you give a baby A and D ointment on their backside consistently, you're going to get rid of that diaper rash. So it wasn't using drugs one time that made us addicts. Um, it was consistent, the consistent use of drugs that, that changed the quality of our lives. But if we could begin to consistently do the right thing, yeah, we fall down, yeah, we make mistakes, but we begin to consistently do the right thing, then we can improve the quality of our lives. And that is directly related to self-confidence, you know, what you believe about yourself. So you're talking about self-esteem, self-respect, self-confidence, accountability, commitment, and consistency. And those are the principles that every program that we have has been created on, uh, using. And so from the parenting program, there are women out there today, April and Deborah and uh, Tracy, who are have become mothers, who have gotten out of prison and gotten their children back and have kept a job, have gotten education, but buying their homes and they are outstanding mothers, you know. Um, our um, Gift for Life program, GIFT, Giving Information That Facilitates Treatment for Life, and that came about because we saw so many women on the street who were coming to us and saying, I need a place. Well, I was very hesitant to mix women straight off the street with women who were coming out of prison because you've got a different population and you've got triggers and things that could happen. And so I began to look at how do we help women who are coming off the street that perhaps had been in prison, but now they're homeless and on the street. And so I wanted to make sure that we kept them alive, literally kept them alive. I got a lot of flack from the religious community because, you know, I was in seminary at the time and, you know, I'm on the street 10 at night to 4 in the morning, two, three times a night, two or three times a week passing out condoms and giving them information to keep them alive until they can make a decision to come off the street. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so the one program, Woman at the Well, out of that evolved Gift for Life. And then out of that involved our um, Healthy Lifestyles, which is the curriculum that we use inside the Transition Center to help them get back on track. And it included everything from having to take a day and go and visit the state capitol, the public library, get a library card, who is your uh, uh, governor? Who's the uh, lieutenant governor? So um, healthy lifestyles involves getting back on track as a citizen and a productive human being. And then finally, our um, um, the last class, uh, which is image, and that is getting people ready for employment. Uh, includes employment ethics, um, grooming, manners, uh, employment etiquette, things like that, how to apply for a job, how to fill out an application. Most recently, my work... Um, so out of all of all of this, all of this that that I, we were dealing with, I was fortunate to have some MPH students from Emory and Morehouse uh, at at the same time, and they asked me, okay, what's our project? And I wanted a two things. I wanted a sex worker survey because I wanted to look at how many of the women in our program were actually involved with sex work, and then the second thing is I wanted a um, an opportunity to um, to see how many women themselves would follow up with us for a year or more after they were released. 
So what we found out is the large number of women who were engaged in human trafficking, not just sex trafficking, but human trafficking, mm -hmm. which entails labor trafficking and um, you know so many other aspects of human trafficking. And that's kind of how the evolution came from Women at the Well Transition Center to engage not only mothers, but women and girls who are also being um, trafficked. Don't forget about your work with Prison Fellowship's Angel Tree for okay. the children of the other. <laughs> I, well, you know what? I started, um, what, the, the reality is Angel Tree could only do so much because the demand was so high. So come Christmas time, we had all these children whose grandmothers were saying, hey, can you help us with the children for Christmas? So 11 years ago, <laughs> I asked my pastor at my church, hey, can I have a Christmas party in the basement for kids whose moms are in prison, and I'm going to get volunteers, and I'm going to get people to donate toys, and so on and so forth. And we started with 10 children 11 years ago. Um, this year, we ended up with 73 children, 19 families, and we have more than 20 corporate and community sponsors and partners. But what happens is on that one day, those children don't have to ask, don't have to answer questions like, where's your mama? They don't have to be afraid to be, just be themselves because all of those children come from the same kind of place. And it gives the caregivers an opportunity to take a break and to have communities embrace these families. And I think that's part of what Woman at the Well Transition Center has stood for that is so important, is that we are... We open the eyes of the community to understand that unless we embrace these women coming out and their families, then we're not building healthy communities. And communities are not just about geography. Communities are about people who share a common bond and a common goal. If you were you know, sitting in front of the legislator or you, know, you had a meeting with the governor, pick whatever lawmaker you want, um, and you got to... You got to say what we need. What would you prioritize? What would you tell them we still need? Um, there needs to be easier access to um, resources when people are re released. To make it hard for us to access the resources um, keeps us from going after them. We don't even know what's available. What kind of resources? Um, how, how do we get a, a place to live? For instance, if you have a drug conviction, you cannot live in public housing. Right. So where do you live? You know, how do you, how do you get enough money on a minimum wage job to even put down as a down payment? And there are agencies that will help you with down payments, but who knows about them? You know, how do you get that information out there? So, I, you know, I would say that access to resources, not just the resources, but the access to the resources, quite often uh, there are barriers to, to the accessing resources. And the other thing is criminalizing victims. For me, uh, especially around human trafficking. So many tr human trafficking victims, like myself, are arrested with their traffickers and, and criminalized along with the trafficker. And the victimization piece is never addressed. And so this individual now is victimized again by the system. Um, and I think that it, it needs to be mandatory to have that that they take that question about whether you have ever the ban the box needs to be it needs to be across every state every state needs to remove that from any um, uh, application for employment because to say have you ever been you can be out 40 years and lived a healthy productive life paid taxes 
and done everything, but you are you are excluded from from working that job because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you did prison time. That's ridiculous. Yes. You yeah. know. And a month ago, I actually had the opportunity to take over to We Have Justice Day at the Capitol. On February 26th, we all went over and we supported these seven bills and got an opportunity to actually ask for support on these bills. And my top four were this, House Bill 981, increasing employment opportunities for formerly incarcerated people, people with backgrounds, because the number one way out of poverty is a job. Mm -hmm. And it changes everything for a person. Once a person can get employment, they're 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 least like they're they're less likely to go back out and exactly. start doing crazy stuff, yeah. especially when they have children. Right. Men behave better when they have visitation. When they're in prison, mm -hmm. they get access and visitation to their children. They don't act up as much. Right. They don't get DRS disciplinary reports as much. And then uh, expanding pre-arrest and diversion programs. Right now we have the Drug Accountability Court. We have the, the Parent Accountability Court. And it's reducing recidivism right now in Georgia by leaps and bounds because now instead of locking people up for mental health mm -hmm. when they need treatment or for drug and substance abuse when they need treatment, they have the Drug Accountability Court where these people have access to treatment mental health, and substance abuse. So that bill as well, expanding pre-arrest programs. And then another one is improving fairness for people with an intellectual disability when they have death penalty cases. Yeah. They have to jump through so many hoops to prove that they're not mentally mm -hmm. disabled in order to keep from getting the death penalty. Right. We had a real big case that got national attention, Troy Smith. Mm -hmm. And this man was mentally ill, but he couldn't prove it. Yeah. How do you get a mentally ill person to prove that they're mentally ill? Right. right. To keep from getting the death penalty. So, and, and, and my favorite, this is my favorite, House Bill 857, Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act. They were, a woman can be pregnant, and they would chain and handcuff was, this woman. I was in a, shackled and handcuffed. My sister, yes, she was an example of I that. I was shackled and handcuffed. Shackled and handcuffed these in women yeah. and just treat them as if they are animals when this woman is pregnant with child. In labor. So, so yeah. you're not going in anywhere. Labor. <laughs> so and we and so we saw that we've seen and we've heard of these incidents, and that's men. Mm -hmm. We are concerned about our sisters, so this bill right here was really big on our agenda. Mm -hmm. So we approached the uh, legislator about about uh, doing something about it. So that was one of the biggest bills that we uh, approached Georgia about reforming. But again, Governor Nathan Deal has really stepped up to the plate. But guess what? He, his hand has been forced by reformers mm -hmm. and advocates yes. like myself and Pastor Hubbard. So that brings me to... One of my last questions, which is, um, it seems to me that you would have been completely entitled to do your time and walk away. And, <laughs> you know, and not, you know, like, you guys have taken it on yourself to do this work when I think a lot of people would say, oh my God, you should never, ever, ever have to look at the criminal justice system again, right? So what motivates you to, to do that. It also seems like you might not sleep. I'm getting that sense. <laughs> um, so, so, 
Um, <laughs> well, okay. So, you know, for some people might say that um, people call us activists, community activists, uh, advocates. Um, I believe that God has a charge on our lives that we could not walk away from. Um, it was, and and I wrote a poem right shortly after I uh, came home called "Gray Shadows," because people really want us to disappear, be quiet, go get a little job, go, you know, just become gray—neither black nor white, just very gray, like a shadow. You exist, but you don't exist. You don't talk about the problems. You just be happy to be out. And our children go to sleep at night. Wondering if mama is okay, wondering if daddy's okay, when mama or daddy are coming home from prison. Our parents bargain with God and say, if, if I just know that he's okay, if I just know that she's okay, um, even if they're in prison, you know. Um, we live our lives crying, our, even in prison, men and women, crying our eyes out in our pillows at night, wondering, um, how, do I, how do I change my life? That one decision you know, affected the quality of my entire life. Yeah. And I got to live with this forever. Wow. I'll tell you a, a, a funny story, true story, and very short. I was in um, what we call the bus stop at the prison, and I had just been taken from county jail in Minnesota where I was arrested and had been housed to Lexington Federal Prison. And I was in an area called the bus stop. The bus stop is a big room with bunk beds all around. And over here they were playing cards and over here they were talking crap and over here they were rolling dice and there was all this chaos going on in this room and I sat straight up and I said hey I'm alive they looked at me and said girl if you don't let out and go to sleep what is wrong with you are you high what is wrong with you I said no I'm alive exactly. and all I could think about at that moment was all the things that I had been through I, I, all I could think about was being left, beaten and left for dead, not once, not twice, but three times. And I thought about being trafficked and being told what to do, when to do, and how to do it. And I, I wondered how long that would last, would I ever get free? And I, I remember having a, a, another person killed right in front of me because they picked him up not realizing it was a guy because he was dressed as a woman and when they brought him back to the corner and dropped him off because they realized it was a man, they shot and killed him. And I, I realized having OD'd more than one time and waking up thinking I was dead and looking around the room to make sure I was alive, all of a sudden, the fact that I was alive meant that there was something greater for me to do with my life than just prison time. And that my life was supposed to impact other people's lives. That whatever it is that I was supposed to do, that God had for me to do, because it wasn't just time. He didn't have for me to just do time. There was something greater that I had to do with my life. And I could, the fact that he let me live to do it was the charge on my life. That I wasn't, I know people that didn't make it. So I knew that I was alive for a reason. That even my incarceration was for a reason. God didn't want me to go to prison, but he used the options that I gave him to keep me alive to, to get the work done that I was called to do. So I don't think that people like, like Carl and I have a choice of saying yes or no. It's just when we say yes or no. Is that how you feel? I had a baby girl. 
And that girl was so gorgeous when she was born. I said, they asked me, what are you going to call her? I said, name a baby Root. <laughs> the nurse said, what's wrong with you? We're not calling that baby Baby Root. <laughs> That's what they call babies that don't have a name, Baby Jane or whatever. Yeah. I said, name a PJ. The nurse said to me, if you don't something. want this baby, we'll take her. I looked at my baby girl, and she was so beautiful, I began to weep. I could not believe that something so beautiful could come from me. Because my self-esteem was so low, you could have sold me for a penny at that time. But I looked at this little beautiful, fat baby. I said, God gave me a beautiful baby like this. I got to change my life. And from that point forward, she hates for me to tell this story. <laughs> she said, Dad, Dad. She's always, Dad, Dad, come on, do you have to be so dramatic? <laughs> but I'm like... It literally, it was a life-changing experience for me. That little fat, beautiful baby, her name is Precious Joy. Hmm. The most, I mean, just gorgeous. And I said, God must see something in me yes. that's worth giving me such mm -hmm. a beautiful child. And that's when my life began to change. Mm -hmm. I said, wow. I remember sitting down in front of a nightclub to beg. I said, this from now on is just going to be a bomb, a street urchin. And I sat down in front of this nightclub, and I started asking, hey, you got a quarter? You got a dime? And I was going to resign my life to that. But after I saw that baby girl, I said, there's no way I'll ever do that again. Mm -hmm. And I will help other men and women get up off their butts mm -hmm. and start living the life that the Creator has given us. <laughs> And that's what I've been doing every time. I've been on a mission. Well, Godspeed on both of your missions. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Bardeer. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're getting this podcast. Thank you to Poddington Bear for providing our theme music. Thank you to Anna White and Brooke Hopkins of the Criminal Justice Policy Program for being amazing and for continuing to support this project. If you have any ideas, suggestions, comments, anything really, feel free to reach out to us at voirdearpodcast at gmail.com. That's V-O-I-R-E. Nope, that's not how you spell it. V-O-I-R-D-I-R-E at gmail.com. And be in touch. Thanks. <laughs>